0: So like I said, every year uh, for our conference in February, I take the Sunday before the conference and simply preach a message. uh, Why a conference on neighbor love? Why do we choose this? Uh, Why do we need this? And this will kind of set the stage for the rest of the week. Um, Last week... Uh, You heard from Will, fantastic sermon, and I got to listen to it and thoroughly enjoyed it and was encouraged by it. So I had the week off from preaching, but I did not have the week off. Believe me, I was working last week. I was working both services harder than I have ever worked both services because I was working in the nursery. Now, I do not want to discourage nursery volunteering, Okay. It's it's worth it. They are cute. They are adorable. They are fun. You'll get plenty of hugs and laughter. They're wonderful. And they are sinners. It's popular in our culture to say that children are born innocent without hatred in their hearts and violence on their hands. Instead, we are told these are learned behaviors that they learn from us and this mean bad world. I would like to invite anybody, we're in need of volunteers, I would like to invite anybody who scribes that philosophy to volunteer in our nursery, because the doctrine of original sin is alive and well down that hallway. Selfishness, dishonesty, slander, anger, violence, this is all happening a few feet away. These are not things human beings have to learn. They come very natural. Do you know why we're hosting a conference on neighbor love? Because we never outgrow the nursery. Nobody here needs to learn how to hate your neighbor. Everyone here needs to learn how to love your neighbor. And today we begin with the command itself. Let's lay the groundwork for the entire week on neighbor love with Christ's original command. Two points, the foundation of love and then the application of love. The foundation of love is is this. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, "Which commandment is the most important of all?" Now we're used to debating. We're used to seeing Jesus debate Pharisees, but here he is engaging with the scribes of the day, and their area of expertise is the law. They were. Uh, they were not only charged with the task of transcribing and preserving the Torah, they were also the guardians, the interpreters, the executioners of the Torah. Uh, the Torah within ancient Israel was treated like the law of any nation, the constitution of the nation. And so the scribes essentially served, they fulfilled the roles of uh, Of justices, of judge, of lawyers, even juries. They did the whole legal system of the law. And so they approached Jesus with a legal question. A question about the law. Which commandment is the most important of all? Verse 29. Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Jesus chooses what is called the Shema as the greatest commandment. The Shema is the confession of faith from Deuteronomy chapter 6 that you have heard many times. It, It served as Israel's greatest creed. The Jews would pray it morning and evening Uh, practicing Jews still do. It was a creed that told Israel two truths. What is true and what to do. What is true? The Lord, your God, the Lord is one. That's what's true. The foundational truth of Israel. Now, that may not seem like much of a truth statement to you, but to the ancient world, it was a revolutionary concept. All ancient religions were polytheistic. There were many gods With different attributes and different roles. And many were prayed to and many were sacrificed to. But what made Israel so controversial is their unique claim of monotheism. There is only one true God. And he is the God of Israel. What we see in the Torah is a God who speaks of himself not as a God of many gods. Or even the greatest God of all those other gods. No, no, no. Just one. The only true God. And so this was Israel's central and unique claim. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, if it is true that Yahweh of Israel is the one true God, then by implication it means that every single person must necessarily treat God as such. And that's where the Shema goes. What is true? There's one God. The Lord is one. So what should we do? You shall love that Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Now note that the commandment, the command uses the language of love. It does not say you shall obey the Lord your God with all your heart. It does not say you shall submit. It does not say you shall confess, it says you shall love. The greatest commandment is a demand upon your love. Now you might find that peculiar for a religious command, but it is born out of the way the Bible views us as image bearers. We are creatures who love, fundamentally. Perhaps a contemporary word, because love is such a messed up word in our culture, perhaps a contemporary word that gets to the meaning more for us would be worship. Animals don't worship, people worship. And this worship impulse cannot be turned off. You are worshiping something, or you are in love. The fall of Humanity was not the end of love, it was the disordering of love. What we should love ultimately, we fail to love ultimately. And what we shouldn't love ultimately, that it is that we love ultimately. And so the greatest commandment is really simple. The Shema is really simple. God wants our love back. He wants our worship back. He bids humanity to love the one true God Ultimately and completely. And when I say completely, I mean it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That is to say, every part of you is undivided in love for God. Now, we might say, does that mean I can't love my spouse, my child? my friends, my work, my hobby, things like this. No, this means that by loving God ultimately, you will love all things rightly. And that is why this command is the greatest command. If this is obeyed, everything else will be obeyed. If God is loved ultimately then love is properly ordered and virtue falls into place. And so the greatest command is very simple. Love God, the one true God, ultimately with all of you. But Jesus doesn't stop there. What he has said thus far was the standard answer of the day. The scribes would have said, good answer, you got it right. As I said, Jews recited this morning and evening as their central creed. So this was expected for Jesus to single it out as the greatest commandment. But he does something interesting. He takes the Shema and then he takes it a step further. Because he views this as the foundation of love that gives way to the application of love. Let's go there. We've seen the foundation of all love. Love for God ultimately with all of you. Now the application of love. Verse 31. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This, of course, is what is referred to as the golden rule. It appears almost inconspicuously in Leviticus 19. We heard that read This morning, and the reason why I read that is because you may not even know that that even shows up in the Old Testament. That's the only place it shows up in the Old Testament. It certainly did not hold the preeminence of Deuteronomy 6 and the Shema, but there is a reason why Jesus singles that out from Leviticus 19. Every religion, every moral code, every philosophy. Every ethic includes the golden rule in some form. Even in Jesus' time. 20 years before Jesus, a famous, the most famous Jewish rabbi, Jewish leader. He summarized the entire Torah by saying, What you would not want done to you, do not to your neighbor. In Rome at the time of Jesus... The pagans spoke of it in different forms as well. For ages, this principle, the principle behind the golden rule has been the standard of ethics even to this day. In fact, in 1993, the Parliament of World Religions declared the golden rule as the global ethic that transcends every religion. Meaning this, this is the one thing every religion seems to agree upon. Every culture agrees on this one thing. And so, what this means is that if you were to ask any culture, any religion of any age, the question that was posed to Jesus, if you were to ask any culture, what's the greatest commandment, ethically speaking, the most common answer would probably be some form of the golden rule. So, this is what Jesus has brilliantly done. It's brilliant. He has taken Israel's most central religious commandment and he has taken the world's most common social ethic and he has bound them together as one. There would be nothing particularly extraordinary about him choosing the Shema as the greatest commandment. Jews would expect that and they would agree. Nor would there be anything particularly extraordinary about him choosing the golden rule. ...as the greatest commandment. Most cultures would expect that and agree. But Jesus is the first and only to bind them together inseparably. To say you cannot have one without the other. Notice he says, there is no other commandment singular greater than these... He was asked for one and he answers with two. Implication, he views them together as one. Together, the greatest religious commandment and the greatest social commandment form the greatest commandment. And that is what sets Christ's ethic apart. In binding them together as one, each becomes what the other desperately needs. Let me explain. The command to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is begging for application. How do I do this? And similarly, the command to love my neighbor as myself is begging for foundation. Why should I do this? But when they come together, they satisfy the other. Jesus tells us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Yes, But what does that even mean? It's begging for application. Is it words we say? Is it feelings we have? Practically, how do I love the Lord my God? Jesus says, love your neighbor. And so in this way, love for my neighbor becomes the expression of my love for God. But now, we also have a foundation for love for neighbor. This lofty love your neighbor as yourself golden rule ethic finally has a reason to stand on every worldview, every culture, religious or irreligious, tells you love your neighbor as yourself. But you know what you should ask? Why? Why should I do that? A secular ethic would say because it's good for humanity. Altruism. It's good for the human race, but why should I care about humanity more than myself? In fact, the very philosophy that undergirds secular society says I should be concerned about my survival over my neighbor. And so a secular worldview makes neighbor love counterproductive to survival in the cruel and meaningless world that we inhabit. There is no reason to love neighbor in the secular world. Okay, on the other hand, the religions of the world would say, Obey this ethic ethics, so you will be rewarded. Love your neighbor as yourself will get you to heaven or some other religious reward. Perhaps an inner peace, greater karma. You do it If you do good to others, it'll end up coming back good to you. Or, or some nirvana or reincarnation or something like that. There are all different rewards to it, but they're all saying the same thing. Do this so you'll be rewarded. But that's just a backhanded way of loving myself. I'm not loving my neighbor. I'm using my neighbor. I'm exploiting my neighbor. I'm loving my neighbor as a means to love myself. And so a religious worldview turns neighbor love into this exploitive exercise in self-love. Don't you see The golden rule is begging for foundation. Begging for someone to answer the question, why? Well, that's what Jesus is doing. Why love your neighbor as yourself? Because you love God with your whole self. And that is what God is calling you to do. The God you love is calling you to love neighbor. So neighbor love is your love offering to the God that you love. So in uniting these two together, what Jesus has effectively done is give application to love for God and foundation to love for neighbor. Our vertical love is now expressed horizontally and our horizontal love is now motivated vertically. So let's consider, that's the exegesis. Let's consider though how this works in our lives because I think this is begging to move from theory to real life practicality. So let's let's flesh this out, okay? You know what I'm gonna do? I'm just gonna go ahead and take it all the way (laughs) to what is probably the most pressing, difficult and controversial issue that we are facing when it comes to neighbor love in our day. I thought I might as well just get the conference started out that way. We are going to be talking about a lot of important issues at the conference this week. How to love our neighbors who are different than us um, ethically, ethnically, socioeconomically, politically. Heck, we're going to even get into how do you love your neighbor, um, your family member. That's difficult. We're going to talk about a lot of different ways to love a lot of different neighbors. But one of those that is not included is love for those different than us sexually. It's not that we are trying to avoid that topic out of fear, but because we think the issue is so timely, so sensitive, so important that sexuality probably warrants its own discussion, maybe even its own conference. But because it is so important, let me use this theory that we've talked about as a way let me, let me flesh out this sermon practically in this area and set the stage for the conference. Practically speaking, um, you, you just need to know this. Percent- when you look at just the percentages, the city of Lexington is home to one of the largest gay communities in our country. We are one of the only handful of major cities that's elected an openly gay mayor. Um, just, I think there's only been three or four of our size. Um, we have crosswalks downtown, um, painted rainbow colors, um, uh, our, uh, gay pride festivals are recognized in the country as some of the most popular, um, whether you want to admit it or not, whether you want to ignore it or not, if we are going to take seriously the call to love our neighbors, then yes, we are going to have to take it, take seriously the call of what this means to love the gay community of Lexington. We cannot exist for the glory of Christ and the good of the bluegrass sans the LGBTQ population of the bluegrass. You're not allowed to do that. Jesus has not given you that choice. If you were to ask the Lord, your God, what it looks like to love him with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, he is going to say, That's easy, love your neighbor. And then if you were to ask him, well, who is my neighbor? Then he's going to tell you a parable. This is what he does in Luke. He's going to tell you a parable and he's going to confront you with the last person you want to love. The one you want to ignore at best and hate at worst. He's going to confront you with your Samaritan. That's exactly what happens when Luke tells the story. They ask him this question. He says, love your neighbor. And they say, well, who's my neighbor? Because to the Jews, the neighbor was just fellow Jews. And he says, no, 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 it's the Samaritan. And I think conservative Christianity has to admit what everyone else sees as glaringly obvious, contextually speaking, to, to, to the context of conservative evangelicalism, this would be the LGBT community. And so, yes, follower Jesus, your Lord has left you no choice. You must love them. You must befriend them. You must listen to them. You must apologize to them where apology is warranted. You must serve them. You must invite them into the hospitality of your home. You must love your gay neighbors. Now, if you are um, more progressive or millennial slash Gen Z, so just below me in age and down, you are probably shouting amen inside right now. I'm pleasantly surprised to hear that from a PCA pulpit. Ah, but let us not forget the foundation of love for neighbor. We are not just nice adherers to the golden rule. We are worshipers of Yahweh of Israel, the one true God. We are lovers of God. This is our foundation of love for neighbor, which means we cannot forget the Lord our God as we express our love for neighbor. We cannot cast off his design. We cannot disregard his law. We cannot redefine his standards. We cannot celebrate what breaks his heart. And so, no, we are not allowed to compromise biblical sexuality and ethics to fit within the culture of our day. For that is not love. It is not love for God and it is not love for neighbor. And so here's my application. Whichever one of those two made you uncomfortable is where you need to grow in neighbor love. Chances are one of those had you amening and one of those had you squirming. The one that made you squirm is where God is pressing in. Is where God is calling repentance. Where God is calling you to pursue. Why a conference? On this, because I think we can all agree that we need help we're not doing it well and we need to learn how to do it well we are bringing uh, Russ Whitfield to town to help us because I believe out of the many leaders in our tradition he's one of the best who is doing it well he's going to take us on a journey through the story of Jonah a prophet who struggled like us with neighbor love struggled a lot with neighbor love. He hated his neighbors. Didn't want them to repent. And we're going to follow his journey with Russ through that and spend a week together in discipleship around the issue. Please join us. You need this. We need this. Register. It will be in the back of the narthex. Register for the conference. But for now, let me close this sermon and begin this conference with the all-important motivation. Can we just admit it It's a lot easier to not love our neighbor. It's a lot easier to give in to the impulse we've had since birth to love ourselves at the cost of our neighbor. We need motivation. Because this is really hard. I spent a few days in D.C. this week. Do you know what that place felt like? One big grown-up nursery. Just fighting over policy instead of plastic toys. Hating neighbor, demonizing neighbor, slandering neighbor, plotting, scheming against neighbor, no love for neighbor. Even the National Prayer Breakfast, perhaps the one final bipartisan event where for a brief moment we at least get together and pretend to love each other, but pretend is the operative word. One speaker at the breakfast said it feels... He was honest. He said, honestly, this just feels like a wedding of a dysfunctional family. Where we all have to get together because it's a wedding. We've got to come to this event and pretend like we're all, all's good. We're okay. Put a smile on our face. Do the thing. But we all know when we leave here, we're back to our entrenched differences. But then Bishop Michael Curry, he was the, um, he was the one who delivered that homily at the royal wedding, if you remember. Um, Bishop Curry stepped to the podium and said with uh, President Trump and Speaker Pelosi just feet away, said, allow me to read to you the words of 1 Corinthians 13. He said, a passage often read at weddings, but has nothing to do with weddings. He said, when Paul wrote this passage, he was sad over a community of strife, a community full of division. And he wrote it to them to show them a better way. And then Bishop Curry with his captivating black gospel voice and cadence, which I am not going to even try to pull off, but Russ will, you'll get that this week, which will be refreshing, with just that captivating voice read to the leaders of the world, 1 Corinthians 13, from our confession of sin, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And then he said that the way of love that Paul speaks of, he learned from Jesus, who himself chose the better way, the way of love. Neighbor love is hard, and, no, and nobody knows that more than Jesus Christ. The one commanding is also the one demonstrating. He is the perfect neighbor. The neighbor who loved us, obnoxious, evil, difficult to love neighbors. The neighbor who loved us even unto death. The cross is when love for God and love for neighbor find their fullest expression. Why must he bleed? Because he loves God. God's law, God's justice, God's righteousness, God's holiness. He will not cast off God's love and standard in the name of love for sinners. He is uncompromising in his love for God. And so he must bleed. And yet, why does he choose to bleed? Because he loves his neighbor. Because he loves us. He is willing to satisfy the law of God's demand to endure the cost of God's justice, God's righteousness, God's holiness, even God's vengeance on behalf of sinners who do not deserve his love. Brothers and sisters, the one calling you to love loved you first. Before he demands you love, Your neighbor, you are the neighbor that he loves. Don't you love him? Thank you. I love him. You love him. If so, then let us go love our neighbors. We're going to spend the week exploring that together. For now, let me pray. Our Jesus, we love you. Teach us to love our neighbors as an expression of that love. You are the foundation. You are the motivation. Help us to see our neighbors, even the ones, the hardest ones for us, the most difficult ones, help us to see them as the application of our love for you, which is demonstrated now at this table. Fill us with your love that we might go love. In your name we pray, amen.